And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we, um, we're hungry and thirsty. Uh, we're too, if we're really honest, we're too desperate to play games. Um, we're too um, needy to just uh, say that uh, all we need is, you know, some wordsmithing from a, a, a preacher. We, in fact, need much more. We need your spirit to be at work. We need you to be at work in our heart. Lord, to the end that uh, we would die more and more to sin and live more and more unto Christ. Lord, that if we don't know you, that we would die to self and live to Christ. Lord, we ask that you would give far more than we could ever ask or imagine because you alone are, are capable of doing it and it is your good pleasure to give us everything we need for life and godliness. So we are here with open mouths of faith asking you to feed us, trusting that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, they say that the key to geology is not knowing what a rock is, but actually understanding how it got to be that way. And I think what's true of rocks is true of people. Uh, forget the first impressions. People are formed really by the deeper forces that have been at work in their lives. And we're looking at a Psalm of David this morning, which was forged by what was probably mo the most intense experience of his life. It's referred to in the superscript of the Psalm, which is not printed in your bulletin, but it says essentially this, that this prayer was prompted from the time that, the, that Nathan the prophet confronted David after he had had sexual relations with Bathsheba. And there's no psalm, I think, in which backstory figures in so heavily. So I just want to take a moment to review what brought David to the point of praying this prayer, of, of composing this psalm. You can go home later and read it in more detail in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But here it is in summary. David's armies were off to war. Uh, he remained in Jerusalem, and he was taking an evening stroll on his roof deck of his palace and he caught sight of a woman bathing. Taken by her beauty, lusting after her, he inquired about who she was. He found out her name was Bathsheba, that she, in fact, is the wife of one of David's soldiers, a man named Uriah the Hittite. And he uh, had her brought to him and had sexual relations with her, which resulted in a pregnancy. Now, again, her husband was away fighting, and... With the pregnancy, David began to scheme on how to cover his tracks. So he sends for Uriah to be brought back to Jerusalem and with the hopes that he will sleep with his wife and be fooled into thinking that he is, in fact, the father. But it, it turns out Uriah is an upright man, an honorable man, and he resolves to not indulge in so much as a home-cooked meal while his compatriots are off on the battlefield. So David takes another tack and he decides, I'm going to have him over and I'm going to get him drunk with the hopes that he will stumble home and have sex with his wife. And he does manage to uh, get him drunk, but the drunkenness doesn't put a dent in Uriah's sense of duty. And so he sleeps on the sofa in the palace. And that is when David's plans go from manipulative to murderous. 
He orders Uriah to be sent back into battle to the front lines where the fighting was hardest, and he orders the commander of those forces to make sure that when they are in the thick of the fight, every other soldier would withdraw from the fight, leaving Uriah exposed to a certain death, which is in fact what happens. But in short order, the Lord sent a prophet named Nathan to, uh, Nathan to David, ostensibly to tell him about uh, a couple of people in his kingdom about whom he's concerned, one man rich and the other poor. One of these men has, Nathan says, massive flocks and herds. And the other man has uh, nothing but a little lamb, which he had to scrimp and save for to get, and he raised it like a member of the family. And when a traveler happened to come to the rich man's house, rather than him taking a lamb from his massive flocks and herds, he instead takes the poor man's lamb and and slaughters it and serves it for supper. And David heard this, and he is filled with rage, and he says this, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had No pity. And then comes the hammer blow. Nathan points his finger at David and he says, you are the man. And consumed by conviction of his sin, David was moved to compose, to pray this prayer of repentance and to write it down. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this prayer is in fact central to the praise of God's people, right? It's in the hymnal. It's sung in church, uh, which means that what we're looking at here isn't, you know, some crazy Bible story confined to a particular time in history and to a particular man's crazy situation, but it's instead, it's a blueprint. It's a blueprint for what repentance and faith look like as a normative thing for all of God's people. So let's look at how this starts off. They say in orienteering and in navigation that the starting point is absolutely critical, uh, that if you're even just a quarter of a degree off, a few miles in, you will be miles away from where you need to be. And, and that's really true of this psalm here. The starting point really matters. The prayer sets the bearing with two words that I think are kind of a prayer all on their own. In fact, they're a prayer I pray very often. And those words are, have mercy. And look, when you pray like that, you're confessing two fundamental truths about yourself, first and foremost. You're saying, first of all, I need help. And secondly, I don't deserve it. But also, those are words you can't say to just anyone, right? I mean, you can't apply for a mortgage with the words, have mercy. You can't, you ought not apply for a job with the words, have mercy. You probably won't get a date if your request is, have mercy. Um, Although I was thinking about it, and I think those were the very words I said to my wife (laughs) back in the day. But the point is, you know, have mercy doesn't move the merciless, right? So even as David begins with a knowledge of himself as needy and undeserving, he also begins with a knowledge of the person to whom he's praying. That he's not praying to a merciless God. And I think that figures into why he doesn't come pleading his case. Uh, Instead, he appeals to God's character, to his character as being that 
uh, grounded in steadfast love. And, you know, I was thinking this week about steadfast love, and I remembered, you know, uh, many years ago doing some premarital counseling with a couple. Um, and, you know, I, like Greg, uh, I require premarital counseling in order to do the wedding, and, and you know, the couple kind of did it out of obligation, but they assured me that, you know, all counseling aside, they had already had a plan for marital success, you know, and that is that they would approach this marriage 50-50. They would live equitably, charitably, out of consideration for one another, dividing each duty, sharing each burden equally, right down the middle, each of them taking their fair share of the relationship and all of its obligations upon themselves equally. And, you know, on the face of it, it's a great plan. I, I tried to implement it itself, and it worked for the first 15 minutes of my wedding reception until it all fell apart, right? And here's why that kind of plan is, is I think, doomed to failure, and it's, it's because I think this is true. I think we very quickly become blind to our 50% obligation and obsessed with the other person's 50% obligation. Blind to what, you know, to what we ought to be doing and obsessed with what they ought to be doing. And, and the reason I get into that is to say that is exactly how God's steadfast love does not work. Because it's not a love predicated upon you keeping your end of the bargain. Because he wholly obligates himself to you. It's not 50-50. It's 100-0. His is a steadfast love. It is a love that persists, prevails in love, even when all we're contributing to the relationship is the disaster of our sin. So David doesn't cling to his prospects for success. He clings to God's steadfast love. And the prayer develops further uh, with, with two metaphors that really illustrate David's apprehension of the reality of his own sin as him, again, being in that place of have mercy. I'm bringing nothing, and you've got to, you've got to show favor, right? So first he asks for the Lord to blot out his sin. Uh, blot it out in the sense that you would expunge a criminal conviction that has been entered into the record. He doesn't quibble about the facts. He knows he's guilty. There, there's no claims of innocence. There's not even, you know, a call for the charges to be reduced from felony to misdemeanor. He knows he has a rap sheet, and he knows that by that rap sheet, he has been really ruined. He's guilty. And he speaks of himself like that, as, as something like a dirty rag that's got to be washed thoroughly, got to be cleansed. In other words, he's not looking at his sin as, you know, this was a quirk in my behavior. He's instead saying, this is my condition. This is in my character. A condition, Lord, that only you have the power to change. So he speaks of the reality of his sin as inescapable, as something he's looking to dead on, maybe for the first time in his life, seeing it for what it is. He's saying, it's in my face all day long. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Which is why he can't talk about it in terms of just rule-breaking or in terms of, you know, simple transgression. But instead, he says, you know, it's something more like treason. And it's at this point that the prayer gets a little strange. And, you know, as I looked at it, it's like, it's almost a little indefensible when he prays against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. 
you know, I mean, we know what happened. I reviewed the story for you. Uh, sure, David sinned against God, but he sinned against a whole lot of other people, didn't he? Sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah and taking his wife and having him killed. He sinned against his own family, against his own people. He sinned against himself. So isn't praying something like against you and you only have I sinned, ignoring, you know, all the other people he sinned against? Well, I think when we really look at this, in fact, David is not wriggling out of the damage he's done, out of the reality of his sin. He's not trying to minimize any of that with a little spiritual God talk. He's actually admitting here that his sin is, in fact, worse. It goes deeper. It's done more damage than I ever realized. He's getting to the heart of the matter. He's seeing the dark heart of sin actually exposed. He's seeing that no action can take place apart from our relationship with God. We're all in relationship with God. And that means our bodies aren't our own. Our world isn't ours to do with as we please. And because our neighbors are made in God's image, there's always more at stake in a relationship than just what may happen between a couple of people. C.S. Lewis made the point that, that aside from the Lord's Supper, the most holy thing any of us will ever encounter in this life is another human being. So before sin is anything else, David is seeing here, it is always first, foremost, and fundamentally sin against the Lord. A number of years, or not a number of years ago, during the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote a treatise called A Treatise on Good Works. And he makes this incredibly insightful point in, in that uh, work where he says that you never break any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the first commandment. That, that is to say that every sin finds its source. It all begins with a failure to worship the Lord and honor Him alone as God. A failure to give Him the glory and the laud and the honor he deserves. There's no idolatry apart from breaking that sin, from, from committing that sin. There's no dishonoring God's name apart from that, or dishonoring his creational order, or dishonoring authority. There's no murder apart from that. Adultery, stealing, lying, covetousness. What's being exposed in this prayer is one of the great lies I think we tell ourselves, and I think David told himself, certainly in our culture, and I think this applied, you usually hear this applied to sexual ethics, and that is the idea that so long as no one is getting hurt, it's okay. And aside from the fact that not hurting anyone is a pitifully low standard <laughs> for our ethics and for a society to live by, it is a lie because someone is always hurt. Sin is never private. It's never contained, it's never constrained, but it's always a blow against the gracious God who made us, and it always leaves a blast radius of human damage. It always does. All, all those corners of my life that I've hung a sign on saying private, or you know, nobody's business but my own, whether it's my business or my relationships or my parenting or my marriage or my recreation, or what I do online in the privacy of my own home affects my relationships. First with God, and, and by extension with everyone else, for good or for ill. 
David likely justified his predation on Bathsheba by telling himself it was nothing more than a tryst. It was just a little peccadillo, a little something that is occurring between me and the object of my desire. But with no consideration of his relationship with God, he saw his sin explode and damage and destroy a marriage, an upright man, an unborn child, a king, a country. So, you know, where he was once driven by questions like, what do I want? What do I get to do? How do I cover my tracks? Now, with seeing his sin for what it is, he's asking the better question of how could I treat God that way? Confronted by the actual sinfulness of sin, he's apprehending the real sanctity of the things that God loves. People's hearts, relationships, marriages, communities, all those things are precious to God. And David sees that in his sin, he's profaned it all. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, seeing how, he's, how his sin has set him against God is, is giving him something that I don't think he would have had otherwise. It's, it's giving him insight into himself. And look, it's often the case that when we're caught in something really terrible or embarrassing, the first defense is something like, well, that, that wasn't me. That just wasn't me. But I suspect if we're really honest, what we're, we're actually saying is, you saw something in me that up to this point I've succeeded in keeping hidden. You, you saw the me I don't want to see and don't really want anyone else to see, and I don't want you to see it so much that I'm going to try to convince you right now that that wasn't actually me. But one of the gracious effects of repentance is it tells you the truth about your sin and you actually realize this really is me. It's often the case that, you know, you sin against someone or, you know, let's just say in my marriage, you know, and, and my wife sees me do something selfish or whatever against her. And, you know, if I'm really being honest, I'm like, you don't know the half of it. You just saw the tip of the iceberg. You should see my heart. You saw the me that I don't want anyone else to see. And again, this really is me. And it makes you know that when you're able to see that, it makes you know that what you need is not simply better resources or tools or, or better circumstances. What you need is mercy. And understanding more clearly than ever that there exists a massive gap between his heart and the Lord, David begins to pray for his heart. And he does so in terms of the good that God desires, not in terms of what God deplores. He trusts that, God's, that God wants not just good for him, for him, but actually good in him. Not just right actions, but a renewed heart from which right actions can then ensue. Truth in the inmost heart. Truth that God will teach. Wisdom in the secret heart, David asks for. That's why David doesn't outline a list of what he resolves to do, but instead leans into what only God can do. He continues to pray for cleansing in verse 7, asking God to purge him with hyssop that he, would, that, that he would be made clean. And that's very poetic language, but he's also speaking about a specific temple rite used for the cleansing of lepers and people who have come into the contact with a dead body. And in those cases, a priest would take you know, a, a bunch of 
hyssop branches, dip them in the sacrificial blood, and sprinkle the defiled or the diseased person seven times each time saying, you shall be clean. You shall be clean. You shall be clean. Seven times. So David prays here, looking to the Lord to be his priest. Praying not only for truth to be put in his heart, but also for sin to be purged from it. You know, the best English equivalent I could come up with for this word purge is something like de-sin. De-sin my heart. Lord, please de-sin my diseased and defiled heart and do it so completely that it would be washed whiter than snow, like it's brand new, like it's never been touched by sin. And the wild thing is that even as David asks for cleansing of sin and clearing of guilt by verse 10, the prayer gets really audacious. He asks the Lord to create. He uses the same word in Genesis 1 describing God's work in creation where he creates all things out of nothing. One commentator said that at this point in the prayer, David's asking for nothing less than a miracle. Because this is something the Lord alone is able to do and David knows he could never do. He can't do the work of creation. Create in me a clean heart. And, and look, it's a little easy to get tripped up here because this looks almost like the prayer of someone coming to faith for the first time. But even as David had put his faith in the Lord long before, he knows he's still needful of saving grace to sustain him. Like, you've redeemed my heart, now renew it with redemptive grace. Let me not get over the good news of what saved me to start, to start off with in, in the beginning. And, and as he continues to pray, you know, the prayer gets a little wilder. It, it continues to get a little hard to interpret here when he asks that God would never cast him away from his presence or take his Holy Spirit from him. You know, David's heart is heavy because of his sin, and that kind of prayer seems to suggest that he fears that salvation is at risk, that somehow because of his sin it can be lost. But I, but I want to notice a couple of things, even as we're looking at the inspired and errant word of God, that at the same time, we're hearing the prayer of a real person <laughs> who's feeling the real depth and the damage of his sin. And notice this, David prays as one in full possession of the Holy Spirit. His sins of adultery and murder haven't changed that fact. But he isn't preparing a theology lecture here. He's praying as someone who's realizing that he's done everything he could to run from and reject God's good will and grace in his life. And he gives voice to what he knows he deserves, but what at the same time God would never allow. And that is that someone saved by grace through faith could be rejected because of sinful works. Impossible. One writer said that David is recoiling from what he knows only too well to be the consequence of an unclean heart, separation from God. So he contemplates the unthinkable, but he also calls upon the Lord to refresh him in the Holy Spirit to restore the joy of his salvation. Now, to be clear, he's not asking God to restore his salvation, which is secure. He's asking that he would restore the joy of it. Salvation can't be lost, but the joy of it certainly can. A dear mentor of mine, the first pastor I really ever worked with in this denomination, gave me some good pastoral advice as a young pastor. He said, you know, something you ought to be 
watching like a hawk in the church is the loss of joy. Don't ever let that happen. And the reason the loss of joy is so concerning is because it indicates that was once being enjoyed as good news, somewhere along the line has gotten to be taken for granted. Or, you know, it becomes a grind because we're all trying to be good religious people. But joy, it turns out, is a really big deal. It's serious business. Because when it's present, it means that we haven't gotten over the gospel onto what we might imagine are better things. Joy means that there is an active and ongoing relishing of the facts of our salvation. The facts that I ought to be dead, but I'm alive. The fact that I should be orphaned, but I've been made a child of the living God. The fact that I should be bankrupt, but I've been made rich in Christ. The fact that I should be condemned, but I'm forgiven. You can go on and on relishing those facts. And here's what I think David is, is beginning to see, that, that had he been in possession of the joy of his salvation, that would have been something better for him, far better than Bathsheba. An old Puritan by the name of Thomas Chalmers described the power of the joy of salvation in a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he explains in that, he explains uh, this dynamic in this way. He says, we only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. A youth may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's only because the idol of material gain has gotten the ascendancy. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object, object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. That is what David is asking for in re regaining the joy of his salvation. So that it would be the supreme joy that... that the Bathshebas would not be as attractive because he's got something better. He's got the joy of his salvation. Not, you know, this isn't a prayer that pleasure would cease, but that he might be liberated from the lie that sin always tells us that there are greater joys to be secured in the gifts than there is in the giver. That sin is somehow pleasurable. When the truth is that if our joy is in the giver of salvation, we can secure genuine joy in, his, in him and his gifts rather than trying to steal it all the time. And calling upon the Lord to create in him a clean heart and restore the joy of his salvation, he begins to contemplate how his experience of repentance and faith might bring joy to others. He's learned some critical information about the nature of himself, the nature of his own sin, the nature of God, the reality of grace, and he can't keep that information to himself. You see, genuine repentance certainly makes you relish salvation from the Lord in your own life, but it also makes you sympathetic towards others who struggle like you have. In fact, I'd argue that verse 13 is something like a solemn vow, that then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Teach people who are just like him, transgressors, transgressors. But teach what? Well, there's two things on David's syllabus that he wants to teach transgressors like him. The first is what he calls in verse 13, the ways of God. And the second is what he refers to in verse 14 as the righteousness of God. 
And, and when he speaks of the ways of God, he's not talking about just kind of the kind of God he is in and of himself. Um, you know, we all have our ways, right? My wife could tell you or my kids could tell you about my ways. I hope they don't, but they could. You know, I mean, they could tell you about how I can't get more than 10 minutes into a movie before I fall asleep. Or how I, you know, go through paper towels like they're going out of style, right? Or I drive, you know, how I drive too fast. But when David talks about God's ways, he's not talking about how he is in and of himself. He's talking about his ways towards sinners, towards transgressors, towards people like him. God's ways towards those who have completely blown it. And really, this whole psalm is a test to God's ways towards transgressors and how he hears our cries for mercy and how he shows us the sinfulness of our sin and he clears us of our guilt, cleanses us of sin, renews, forgives, creates in us clean hearts, restores the joy of our salvation. Those are his ways. In fact, I'd argue that the fulfillment of David's vow to teach transgressors your ways resulted in Psalm 32. So that while in Psalm 51, 13, we've got the lesson plan, in Psalm 32, we've got the lessons learned. And the lesson learned about God's ways with sinners is blessing. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The person who quits lying to themselves about their sin, right? The ways of God don't bring burden, they bring Blessing. Blessing that further motivates David to teach transgressors what he calls the righteousness of God. And just as God's ways aren't described here as just a quality within himself, neither is his righteousness. But it is instead that which he puts to work in the life of sinners, that they would be blessed. David has experienced that righteousness go to work on him through repentance and faith in exactly the way John describes it in 1 John 1, saying that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, that is righteous, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And, and you look at that and you kind of ask the question, you know, why not just say he's faithful and merciful and will forgive us our sins? Or he's faithful and kind and will forgive us our sins? Or he's faithful and patient and we forgive us our sins. Why, why does this forgiveness need to be righteous? Why does it need to be just? Well, it's good to remember the plot that prompted the prayer. How hard David tried to manage his sin in attempting to cover his tracks and clean it up, which resulted in a murderous mess. But at the same time, he also knew when he heard about the facts of his sin from the prophet that the man who did this even before he knew it was him, deserved to die. He knew that not only experientially, but legally. He knew there was no provision in the law for Moses, of Moses that could expiate the sins of adultery and murder. But again, let's not let the particular scandalous facts of David's sin obscure what Scripture says is true of all sin. And that is that the wages of sin is death. Which is why David doesn't say, I will teach murderers and adulterers your ways. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways, your righteousness. None of us are exempted. You see, the thing about sin is that the damage and destruction and ultimately death of it will fall on someone. I mean, think, let's just think of the last time you did someone wrong 
or the last time someone did you wrong. Maybe someone apologized and, 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 they, and they said they'd make it right. What, what are they doing there? They're taking the damage of the sin on themselves. They're absorbing it. They're dying a little death in order to make it right. Or maybe, maybe they cut you off and they won't ever talk to you again and they're slandering you and gossiping about you right now. What are they doing right now? They're making you absorb it. Or maybe you or the other person just stuffed it. And even as I talk about this, you're thinking about some relationship and it's an open wound. What are you doing? You're both absorbing it. You're both paying for it. But the point is, it will go somewhere. It will land on someone and it will kill you. But God's way with sinners and his righteousness towards sinners is this, that even as the just condemnation for sin grips us and rightly says to us, you're the man, you're the woman, you deserve to die. The righteousness of God in the gospel steps in and says, rather than letting the sin land on you or someone else and kill you or someone else, I will let it land on me. I'll be the man. I'll bear the penalty you could never bear so that you will live and never die. That is what he has done in giving us Jesus. For those who turn from their sin and trust in themselves, trusting in him instead, the Lord has had mercy according to his steadfast love and according to his abundant mercy to blot out transgressions by taking the condemnation for the sin that we deserved upon himself, washing us thoroughly of our iniquity, cleansing us from our sins with his own blood. The psalm ends with David going from professing God's righteous ways to praising him for redeeming sinners. He says, actually, that, the, that he knows the Lord will not delight in sacrifice or he would give it or he knows that he won't be pleased with a burnt offering. He's not saying there's no need for sacrifice here. He's just saying that I can't make a satisfactory one myself. No way. And, and I don't know, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been busy trying to make the sacrifices for your own life. Maybe you've been busy in trying to manage your own sin. Maybe you're burdened with always having to cover your tracks always hiding or defending or redefining or manipulating or in some way maneuvering and managing sin or busying yourself in trying to become pleasing to somebody or at peace with yourself or in some other way get to the right place with yourself, with others, or with the world you're living in. And all you feel you've gotten from it is a broken heart. And that's where I want to say that is a great place to be. Because David says, Lord, all I've got for you is a broken heart. I've got a heart broken by the sinfulness of my sin, a heart broken by all my ways in which I've pushed it so hard and tried to make my heart be what it was never made to be, righteous in itself, its own Savior, its own life. And the wonderful news is we can give up on that and give in to the Lord and His ways and His righteousness. And know that the Lord loves the broken and contrite heart. Because that is the kind of heart where we have stopped playing games about the reality of our sin and about the reality of the grace of God. It, it, that's the kind of heart that's given up on the scheming and the sin management strategies and has come to know that its only hope is in the Savior, who alone can create in us a clean heart 
who alone is able to renew a right spirit in us by his grace, who alone is steadfast in his love for sinners. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? And I want to say forgive me and maybe all of us for taking it for granted. Lord, would we Would you give us the grace of seeing the sinfulness of our sin that we might grow, not in moral progress, but in dependence on Jesus? That rather than turning to things that are as pitiful and lifeless as our own competence, as our own strategies for managing life and all its contingencies, instead... Pray the prayer David started off with regularly in our life. Lord, have mercy. Lord, let me be on the receiving end of your ways, your righteousness. Walk, help us to walk in those ways. Lord, again, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And Lord, I pray especially you do that as we come to this table, that we would really be thunderstruck by the idea that unlike every other philosophy and religion and worldview, we don't have to come here proving ourselves or meeting your demands, or meeting the demands of a bottomless conscience that will never be satisfied, but instead we come as those with faith in you, maybe not strong, but in you, understanding that the demands have been met in your Son. And Lord, we thank you for this sacrament that would get through our thick skulls um, that are so prone to forget the gospel that just as you feed us, just as you, just as you sustain our life with food and drink, how much more have you given us life and sustained it in Jesus Christ? Lord, thank you for this inestimable gift. Lord, give us joy as we come here, that we would eat and drink unto life and that it would benefit not only us, but that we would be motivated, as David was, to teach transgressors your ways and your righteousness and that Santa Fe would be greatly blessed by that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.